Good morning, everybody. Conley here with the Science Night in the morning. Yep, that's right. I have Dr. Sean Graham here uh, all the way from Australia. Dr. Sean Graham, what's up? What's up, everybody? I'm here. I'm ready to do this. Uh, yeah, I don't have a job, so I can I can do this anytime. <laughs> but but you are publishing books right and left. You're writing yeah. a lot. So the I'm life of a scientist things. is never never dull, I would say, right? No, no, no. It's it's awesome. It's been great to be able to just watch the kids grow up and work on things like uh, writing. And yeah, I'm applying for, for good stuff here in Australia and uh, got some good prospects. So, and it's going to be spring soon. There's all kinds of things to look forward to. All right, cool, man. Well, let's get into it. Now, though you are in Australia, I'm sure the flora and fauna is uh, drastically different over there than uh, it is here. So that kind of gives you a treasure trove of new things to physically observe and be out on uh, the field for. Like, you know, you got the ruse, you have the the mar all the different marsupials, and then, you know, you have the, the, the fauna, the different trees and the plants and the bushes and the grasses, you know. Yeah, everything is totally different. You couldn't, you couldn't find a place more different, really, anywhere in the world. Uh, I mean, there's a few big islands like Madagascar, New Caledonia, places like that where everything's different. But, you know, nothing nothing on the scale of Australia. It's all so different. And that's it's kind of what it's like for me right now. It's like I'm going back to school. Right. You know, I, right. I, I knew I knew the flora and fauna of, of North America so well. Um, got to know the southeast real well growing up there and doing all my graduate work there and then got to know west texas really well yeah being there for seven years and now it's like everything's brand new it's it's cool i've been here I, i've traveled here to visit several times over the last 10 years so i'm not it's not like completely new to me but i'm at the point now where i am trying to learn um species names get to know trees for the first time you know that getting to learn them uh, by name and it's it's tough it's and especially at my age i'm no spring chicken so <laughs> retaining retaining latin names for new things is is hard for me at this point but you know it's it's what we do as scientists like i've done this many times in my career where i'd go to someplace new and have to kind of learn stuff ahead of time so that i would be able to function well in the new environment yeah I had to do it in, you know the tropics in south america and um, I'm doing that now here so that I can, you know, uh, know what I'm doing. I've already got a, a little uh, part-time job where I'm doing some ecological work. So it's cool. It's, it's kind of fun in a way. It's a big challenge. Yeah. It's not the kind of thing that you usually do mid-career, but um, it's, a, it's, it's kind of fun. But yeah, like the plants are totally different. <laughs> For example, we, there aren't, you know, Australia is mostly a desert continent. Something like 75% is as arid as the desert southwest. Yeah. And there are very few succulents here in Australia hmm. in the desert. A lot of more monocots or dicots? 
it's a mixed bag. A lot of a lot of small shrubs um, that just belong to all kinds of wacky families yeah. of plants that we don't have in North America. Uh, there are salt bushes. That's kind of cool. That's yeah. familiar. Okay. Uh, salt bushes can be dominants in the um in the they're in the same group that, that the salt bushes in in North American deserts belong to, and uh, they're pretty common in parts of the desert here. So that's that's familiar. There's the the family to which creosote bush belongs is here and has mm-hmm. many desert species. That's a worldwide desert family. Yeah. But uh, succulents are conspicuously absent. There are no big tree cactus. No prickly pear-like things. Uh, you know, in some of the other deserts of the world, there are succulents that are like our desert succulents in the Southwest, but they're from unrelated families. But in Australia, there are very few. And they're really nowhere are they uh, a dominant in the desert hmm. of uh, Australia. So that's kind of a kind of a real conspicuous thing. And so yeah. I kind of miss that. And that is the topic of our show today. And that is the topic. Segway. Uh- Yes, it is. And it's funny you say that because you're, you're in Australia now and you're lear- you're learning the names of plants that are native to Australia right now. So you're kind of like this ultimate tourist that's staying, sticking around. But now you got to relearn everything, uh, yeah. you know, completely under a new light. Now, when tourists come to the high desert out here uh, in in the the high desert, West Texas, Chihuahuan Desert area, um, well, they have a treasure trove of different uh, plants that are literally completely unique compared to uh, the rest of the United States, really, I would say. And um, what's so cool about it is when we have tourists out here, we get a lot of questions. Oh, wow. What is that called? What is what is this plant cactus called? What you know, how how do they look like that? Why do they look like that? Why? You know, I, I've known uh, a lot of folks uh, that didn't understand what a resurrection plant was or how it worked. Um, yeah. Also, the century plant, a big one out here. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of myth surrounded by these plants, right, and how they work. There's uh, And it, the myth is even cool. So I don't know if you want to delve in some of the myth behind some of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, indigenous tribes you know, would uh, have different myths around uh, these plants. So uh, let's get into it. Let's just start with, uh, I would say, probably the most common uh, succulent uh, that we have out here is just your basic, your basic cactus, your basic, like, like what, what would you say the most basic cacti is that's here (laughs) in the high desert? Great, great question. I think, for, we we should establish what a succulent is, okay? Because that's going to really help us, uh, you know, distinguish the different kinds. <laughs> okay. So a succulent, a succulent is any any kind of plant that has this kind of rubbery water storage tissue. Mm-hmm. It gives it that kind of supple, rubbery texture that we call succulents, and you know that's actually an adjective and and a plural noun. So depending on how you when you say it, it sounds okay. the same. It sounds the same, but it's spelled differently. Hmm. So succulents is just having that fleshy water storage tissue, and succulents with a T are the plants that have that a water storage tissue, and that just happens to be something an adaptation that we have a lot of in the deserts of the Southwest. Um, we have, even though it's dry in the desert Southwest, we have fairly predictable rain 
periods mm-hmm. right. that the plants can kind of depend on and, and they can replenish their water supplies in that storage tissue. Um, in other deserts of the world, the rainy season is a lot less dependable. And so it's harder for plants to count on those rainy periods. And so there aren't as many succulents in the other deserts of the world. In the Sahara, you don't find very many. In the big deserts of the Middle East and uh, Central Asia, you don't find them. In Australia, it's too unpredictable. There's no set rain period uh, where they can depend on it. So those things just don't work in Australia or never did in the past. So in the desert Southwest, we have dependable rain periods. So those things really do well. And so we have a bunch of different groups of succulents. We have, you know, like you said, the cactus is kind of the most conspicuous. That's a family of plants. It's very unique. It's got that water storage tissue. But other succulents are out here, and they don't belong in the same group with the cactus, even though a lot of people think they do. You've hmm. got yuccas, which yeah. have fleshy leaves often. Not all of them are actually succulent, but um, a lot of them are. And so the agaves are another group. Um, that are more closely related to yuccas than they are to cactus, but they're still in a separate group from the yuccas. Um, uh, and and you could go on and on. There's little stone crops, uh, the crassulaceans. Those are mm. really cool. Those are a little bit less conspicuous, but they're really fun to look for. They live on rock outcrops usually, and they've got little bitty rubbery uh, leaves, and they're really cool to look for. And we got plenty of them in West Texas. And so that's another group of succulents that we have. Um, Mm. But yeah, a tourist coming to West Texas was to see all these things and be baffled that they're all spiny and have weird rubbery textured leaves or stems and they go, oh, they're all cactus. And you'll hear people, just to keep it simple, I think, even people who know better uh, tell you that a sotol is a different kind of cactus than the normal kind of cactus, but a sotol is a different kind of plant entirely from a cactus. It's spiny, it's got, yes, it's got sort of rubbery texture. I think it's debatable about whether or not Sotol really is succulent or not, um, but it certainly kind of fits the bill of this these kind of spiny, uh, weird plants. Uh, the Ocotillo belongs kind of in the same group, but it's not really succulent either, mm-hmm. but it has uh, spiny stems and it's really cool. We'll talk about that as well. So lots of weird spiny plants that we have, some succulent, some not. And the cactus, like you said, is the most conspicuous, most cool. We have a lot of different kinds. And I would say of the cacti, now that we've established what a succulent is, sure, the cactus that is the most obvious plain old cactus is probably the prickly pear. <laughs> yeah, prickly pear. Right? That's what that's what I was fishing for earlier is the prickly yeah, pear yeah. cactus. You, you, you set the line, you put the, <laughs> you put the worm on the hook, you got me nibbling, and there it is. Yeah, there you finally is. landed me after we, we a long landed. A long explanation, the prickly pear. That's I'm going to put most... you up on my wall now, baby. I'm going <laughs> to, but yeah, no, it's on every cactus. single credit, like basic credit card that you, when you start out a bank account, you, they give you a credit card. And if you, if it's in the high desert, if it's in West Texas, guarantee you the prickly pear cactus is going to be sporting the face yeah. of your credit card. So uh, we got a ton of them in West Texas. There's a bunch of different species. So and most people, tourists probably even look and go, wait, that purple tinged one probably isn't the same thing as this other one that's kind of light, got light colored spines. There's a ton of different kinds of prickly pears in West Texas. One of the things it's famous for, uh, a bunch of different species, some are hard to sort out. They hybridize readily. So you'll get these 
in-betweeners that are hard to classify mm-hmm. and you know uh the, we got the blind prickly pear which is really cool and and bizarre it's uh a lot of people are probably familiar with it it doesn't have the main spines that uh, the long spines instead at the little uh round spots where the spines come out what they call aerials uh there are a bunch of little bristly hairs that uh, are called glockids hmm. that are even worse than spines and anybody who's ran into a patch of blind prickly pear knows what I'm talking about. Mm. Those things stick in you like little bitty uh, porcupine quills, like little hairs, and they're really hard to get out. You need to tweeze them out, basically. I always tell my students not to go anywhere near blind prickly pear, and inevitably they always go close anyway and learn the hard way Yeah, that it's really bad to go near the blind prickly pear. And the legend has it, talking about legends and myths, that the winds in West Texas would blow so hard, it would blow those glockids off of the blind prickly pear into the eyes of cows and oh, wow. cause them to go blind. And I don't really think that happens. But I'm, your your phone is probably going to light up with 100 ranchers who want to <laughs> string me up for saying that. <laughs> They're going to tell me that half their herd went blind one year. And I, I'm welcome, I welcome that. If you have good anecdotes that this is a true myth, Mm-hmm. call in and tell me I'm a liar. Uh, but I'll bet, I'll bet they won't have any pictures of it um, or evidence, but I only say that to be provocative to try to get people to listen to our show. So I'm just trying to be controversial here. Oh yeah. Well, Hey, it's always going to be controversial a little bit. So I'm, 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 I'm there with you, man. So if you were guiding a tourist around town, and you were to describe how these succulents work from the from the drop of water that lands on the succulent to yeah, how it processes and then yeah. to how it stores and is there like a a deadline when it needs the next drop of water there kind of is yeah yeah that's really good a uh, good question so um the, the other thing that cactus are kind of famous for is having these big thick mats of shallow roots right real shallow right? yeah yeah they're they're right at the surface it's like a big you can imagine like an underground net of roots and usually the the, the net of roots is at least as wide as the plant is tall hmm. so for something like a giant saguaro which are the giant cacti of the sonoran desert down in arizona mm-hmm. you know if it's a 70 foot well we'll say 40 foot saguaro cactus it's got a 40 foot diameter nest of shallow roots under it so that when it rains those things just soak up the water wow and it happens really quick they can even sprout new tiny little fimbral type uh roots called rain roots Hmm. that within maybe a few days the soil is enriched even further with lots of roots just to sop up that water and you know a saguaro cactus has those pleats that allow it to expand like rib cage like an accordion Mm -hmm. and so it can take up, um, you know, a 40-foot saguaro could be a couple of tons, and about 70% of that is water in wow. that water storage tissue, that succulent tissue. It's mostly what the giant saguaro is. And it can lose a great deal of that water. You talk about a deadline. It can lose something like 70% of its body weight without dying. Hmm. It can just shrivel down and then... It has to have that water replenished and expand again, or it will die of dehydration. 
the cool thing about the giant saguaro is it's got two regular rainy seasons that it can wait for to accomplish that. It's got a winter spring rain period in the Sonoran Desert. These fronts come up from the Pacific, kind of good rains in the winter, spring, and then another rainy period in the late summer, uh, June, July, August, just like we have here in the Tuolumne Desert. And and so it only has to wait between those two uh, rainy periods to replenish its supply. The, the Chihuahuan Desert cacti have like a good eight-month period where they can survive without another rain, and then they can get all that water replenished that they've got, uh, that they lost during the dehydration phase. And so that's, that's the kind of schedule we're talking about. And most of them can, they can make it. They can, uh, they can even go for a longer period of time as long as they've got a couple of little bitty rainfalls in between. But, you know, if you're talking about the kind of, desert conditions that you might have in the Sahara where you can't really expect any place in the Sahara desert to have a reliable rainfall for maybe three or four years, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't work. All of our cacti would, would, would never make it. And so again, that's why we don't really see that group represented or groups like it uh, succulents in some of these really extreme deserts where the climate doesn't allow replenishment of the water supply. Interesting, interesting. So I, I guess the, some cactus you might see around here, tell me if I'm wrong on this, Sean, uh, that's similar to the saguaro. They're kind of like mini saguaros to me, at least. Uh, San Pedro uh, that I see at least potted around here. It looks like a, a mini saguaro cactus. I'm Have, not sure what that one is you're, you're mentioning. Are you talking about choyas? No, it's a it's or it's, just a planted. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a cactus. It's called San Pedro, and it it look it doesn't really have arms like the saguaro cactus. It just looks like one giant saguaro yeah, just yeah. up. But they grow, they don't grow nearly as big as saguaros. But yeah, and uh, you see them planted in yards and stuff. But yeah, not really out in the in the actual desert. Yeah, so the, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And the climate in West Texas allows people to plant all kinds of cacti from all over the world and they oh, do yeah. pretty well. Yeah. I don't know if giant, giant swaros are kind of notoriously difficult to transplant other places. I don't think they would do well yeah. in West Texas, mostly because we have these hard freezes that would kill them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are, you know, especially you can go to various nurseries and, and, people who have really good zero scaping yards oh, yeah. and find where people have planted stuff from, from other, other areas and they do really well. And now I should mention in Australia, p- people have crazy like organ pipe cactus and, and saguaro like cactuses growing in their front yard. They, they do pretty well here. Yeah. Um, but in fact, some have escaped and are like feral, you know, invasive species. <laughs> so once they're, once they're here, they, they can manage, yeah, uh, but I think a lot of times they have to be watered on a pretty good schedule, or they wouldn't make it in the, the, in the actual outback. The saguaros that you see out here—I uh, mean, they've been here for years—and uh, if you run into them with your Honda Civic, it'll probably total your Honda Civic because they're <laughs> they're made out of metal. And <laughs> oh, right, that kind of saguaro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah now, why why they put them out here? And, you know, I don't understand. Honestly, they're not native to this area. They're only like an yeah. Arizona type cactus, but you see them all over the place in metal form. So I, yeah, it's yeah. just crazy. Yeah, you'll to me. see you'll see people plant um <laughs> you know, do the same thing with like Joshua trees and stuff. Yeah. That try to get them growing in other places. 
But yeah, they, you know, even though we don't have those tremendous giant tree cacti like the Sonoran Desert, in in the Chihuahuan Desert, what we do have is a lot of species diversity. We have more yeah. species diversity. And the, you know, the famous thing you can say if anybody from Arizona tries to front <laughs> is that uh, there's more species of cactus in West Texas than the entire state of Arizona. Oh, yeah. In fact, I've I've heard, I've read um, and I need to check up on this that West Texas has more species of cactus than the entire rest of the U.S. combined. Yeah, so you can include I can see uh, that. California, Nevada, everything, and um, it wouldn't count up to the number of West Texas. So, uh, Chihuahuan Desert has amazing diversity of cacti. They're just all, for the most part, kind of small and not as charismatic and giant as the saguaro. Um, but yeah. you know, little bitty, you know, uh, dime-sized cacti that live in very unique specific types of rock environments we got that kind of diversity here in west texas really cool yeah so i should mention another really cool adaptation unless we're are we coming up on a break yeah we're coming up on a break but um i'd like to get after the break i'd like to get into a lot of that diversity you know you you mentioned like we have the button cactus that are out there the fish hook cactus the hedgehog Mm -hmm. cactus there's so many different kinds i mean uh, an array of different prickly pear type cactuses and uh then you got your eagle's claw that real beautiful uh, you're, you're familiar oh, yeah. with that one right yeah love them love them yeah yeah they're amazingly beautiful so uh at, we're gonna take a quick commercial break we'll be right back and then we're gonna help you as the tourist identify some of these species of cactus that you'll see as you go out and wander the high desert how's that sean let's do it another tour Another tour around the desert. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. All right. We are back. Dr. Sean Graham on the line all the way from down under, but he is uh, very familiar uh, with uh, our beautiful high desert plain that we have here uh, in uh, Alpine, Big Bend region. And uh, well, you know what, Sean, let me tell you, you have done it yourself uh, when you're out here giving tours and, you know, having people that have come from all across the world to just see the uniqueness of uh, the flora and fauna in the desert. Um, you um, you probably have a lot of students that are working on their master's and doctorates in just that, right? Um, so uh, let's kind of do a tour and explain to some of the tourists that might be in town right now uh, about what these cactus are, where, where are, like, what do they look like? What's the names of them? How do I d- identify them? Uh, and, and, you know, we can start with the most identifiable one here, I think. There, there's a few, but uh, the yucca is all, all around. Yeah, yeah. So yuccas. Yeah, so maybe we should, can kind of go back into the different kinds of succulents. We talked about cacti, uh, and we'll, gump, we'll circle back to cacti again because they're so diverse that with just a little bit of knowledge, you can actually kind of classify them at least into their little subgroups. Mm-hmm. And then it'd be off to the races, um, being able to actually identify it to species. That's a, a little bit harder. Um, there's a bunch of field guides available, uh, but just figuring out that, you know, this is a prickly pear, this is a choya, that's not too hard to do. Right. And similarly, like a yucca, these are these uh, leaf succulents that have uh, kind of big, long leaves with pointy ends. The most familiar maybe to a lot of people in the U.S. would be the Joshua tree um, because of the U2 album. 
<laughs> right. But we have a lot in West Texas. We don't have the Joshua tree in West Texas, but we have um, really cool, you know, tall tree yuccas that do have a central woody trunk like the Joshua tree. My favorite is the what, what I call the giant dagger. Giant um, dagger. Yeah. And that's that's the I, there's a bunch of different common names for it. But this is the one you see planted along like U.S. Highway 90 that's got an enormous trunk like um, the width of an elephant's trunk or like not elephant's trunk, but elephant's legs, wow. you know, almost as big as like a ponderosa pine, huge, big green leaves that um, spread kind of in a perfect star pattern. Um, not as branchy as Joshua tree, but it can have branches. It can be enormous and it, and it's not common in Texas, but is super common South of the border. It's planted along the highways in West Texas. It's planted on the Solros campus Mm-hmm. It's probably the most common giant tree yucca planted on the Solros campus. So if you wanted to do a tour, you could just kind of stroll along the Solros campus. You go to the, uh, you know, we shouldn't forget to mention that there's the cactus garden yep. right out in front of the, the Solros campus. The yep. Beautiful Michael cactus garden. Howell, amazing. If you can get your hands on the guide that goes with it, you, you can actually use it to figure out which species are which in there get an idea of some of the diversity of cactus. <clears throat> they include some of these other succulents in the cactus garden. But a yucca has these uh, long pointy leaves, often with little fibrous kind of tendrils coming off them, and then a unique kind of flower stalk. So the flower stalk is going to help you distinguish the different kinds of succulents that look like yuccas but aren't yuccas. The flower stalk is this woody projection that has big white flowers when they bloom. And when when they're done blooming, the flower stalk dies back and stays on the plant. And so yucca blooms more than once in its lifetime. Mm-hmm. Some of them you find with several old flower stalks kind of drying on the top of the plant. Right. Uh, not all of them are growing as trees. You can find yuccas that hug the ground and just kind of protrude from the soil. Uh, the plains yucca, um, an example of a type of yucca that never kind of grows into a central trunk. And we have uh, those and several kind of tree yuccas in West Texas. What does a, a baby one of those look like? <laughs> like a little baby one. <laughs> like, yeah, like a baby giant dagger? Uh, it looks, it's impressive. Um, I'm not, I don't know if I've ever seen a like super baby, like, you know, just germinated giant yucca. Really? Giant dagger yucca. I'm not sure if I've ever seen that because by the time you see them and notice them, they're already really impressive because it's just this enormous, huge leaf, right? Uh, spiny leaf thing growing from the ground. And it takes it a while to kind of heave itself up onto that woody trunk. Yeah. But they start out on the ground and eventually start growing a big trunk and growing up higher and higher. And they can be like 30 feet tall. How, how many years but, do you think that takes? Because I see a lot of uh, those types yeah. of yuccas in people's yards that just really kind of hug the ground. But then they have some on the, on the side and, and whatnot that are already growing into the trunk. It looks like just by looking at it and observing it, you can tell it goes through a whole bunch of cycles in order to grow yeah. the trunk. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it does. It takes a long time. It takes decades. And I'm, I'm more wow. familiar. I've, I've read a bunch about the Joshua tree, which is fairly equivalent. And people estimate that a big kind of branchy Joshua tree might be something like 200 years old. Wow. Goodness. Yeah. yeah. That's so amazing. What they do is um, they grow. You can, you can usually, if you go to a place where there's lots of Joshua trees, you'll see like a little bitty, just uh, kind of 
stem of of those spiny leaves sticking out of the ground that's only like a foot tall. Yeah. And that's usually when you start noticing them. They obviously, when they germinate, they must be even smaller than that, just like a pair of leaves down there in the ground, or I guess a single leaf. Yeah. And so it might take, you know, five years to get to the point where it's like three or four feet tall. Mm-hmm. And then it might take something like 20 years for them to get like seven feet tall and they still haven't branched. Wow. And then when they flower for the first time, that causes the first branch to occur. So the stalk grows up mm-hmm. right out of the top. Mm-hmm. And that causes a split. And then they just kind of keep splitting and splitting and splitting as they put up more flower stalks. And so if you kind of uh, extrapolate the number of branches and the number of flowering stalks, you can kind of get a rough estimate. There's no way of knowing for sure because they don't throw down growth rings like other plants do. So you can't you can't actually uh, know for sure. But the estimates for Joshua trees, something like 200 years. And I would say for giant daggers, probably not that old, but something like a hundred, I would yeah. buy that for sure. Like a really wow. big one with lots of branches. Cool. So listeners, if you see one of those beautiful trees branched out and uh, for some reason you see some neon uh, orange paint uh, line strip across it, you better tie yourself to that sucker because uh, that, that thing's worth saving, I would say. But, yeah, uh, just amazing. I love them. Yeah. So, all right. Well, okay. We have the yuccas. Now, are well, okatillas considered uh, succulent? Okatillas don't really have succulent tissue. Oh, you're um, right. Yeah. Th- th- at the base, something like at the base of an okatillo, and this for people who are totally unfamiliar, if you live in West Texas, you've seen this, you might not know what it was. It's this amazing, really cool whip like, like a bunch of whips sticking up out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Almost like a, a, a many-legged squid with its head buried in the dirt. Yeah. That's what it looks like. I love that and imagery got, there. Yeah. It's got like a bunch of tentacles. And all the, all the tentacles, the whip-like stems, are covered with spines. And it does put out leaves after rains. So it's not – a cactus doesn't never puts out leaves. Uh, Ocotillo does. They're drought deciduous leaves that will drop right after, you know, a couple of weeks after rain happens. But for a while, they they can grow leaves after rain, and they look like then they look like furry pipe cleaners, all the little stems. Now they do have this kind of greenish tissue towards the base of the stem, which is uh, photosynthetic. Hmm. So they like like a, a cactus is is all of that you know none of that stuff is actually a leafy material of the cactus. It's all big bloated stem material, and it's all green, so it's all photosynthetic. And the Ocotillo, you know, its photosynthetic surfaces are those temporary leaves. And also some of that green tissue on the stem can actually do a little photosynthesis, maybe even when they've dropped their leaves and they've kind of gone more dormant. But it's not really succulent tissue. Um, I hope I'm not wrong about that because it, it certainly doesn't feel like it. And it wouldn't function as well as some of these really obvious succulent plants yeah but it's it real is, woody it, it's real like it's kind very, of exactly it's woody and it's got it's got some it's definitely got some photosynthetic tissue in the stem if you look down where it's peeling and it's green um and it certainly gets confused for cactus because it is covered with spines mm-hmm. and it looks weird <laughs> i always thought I, I wanted to make a a 1950s sci-fi horror movie about okatia i thought <laughs> <laughs> that would be so cool. Like it would just go well with all those other weird radioactive ant and Gila monster movies from the fifties, the Ocotillo. Cause and it is, looks like it's about to grab you. Yeah. You walk by and it looks like any second it's just going to lurch over and 
and wrap you up in those stems and, and that would hurt. Oh, that, that would be great. And like have a javelina as a sidekick. That'd be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. So no, I should mention the Ocotillo belongs to a unique North American family found nowhere else in the world. It's a, it's kind of a semi-arid desert family of plants that's unique worldwide. There's about 15 species, most in, in Mexico. There's a giant one in the Baja Desert called the Bujum. That's an Ocotillo-like plant. Um, it's related to the Ocotillo. And then our own beloved Ocotillo. You can travel the entire world looking for Ocotillos, and you will never find them anywhere else but North American deserts. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. So, well, Ocotillo isn't uh, technically a, a succulent. Right, I don't think it's a succulent, so, and it's certainly not a cactus. And that maybe that brings us to the agave, yeah, which is is definitely a succulent and um, is not a cactus. Is not so a they're, cactus. They're not related to cactus at all. Um, they're more closely related to yuccas. Uh, they get kind of swapped around what family they belong to. I think right now they're in the same family with the asparagus, which. If you look at the the flowering stalk of a big agave before it turns into flowers, it actually looks like a giant asparagus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I didn't before think about before that. it actually grows flowers, and it's definitely a, a leaf succulent. Those big basil leaves um, growing from the ground. I don't know if there's any such thing as a tree agave. I don't think there is. They all grow. They're ground huggers. Huge, big, thick leaves. Usually much thicker than a yucca. And the way you can tell them apart is that on the agave leaf, there are these little kind of fish hooks along the margin of the leaf, the whole length of the, uh, of the leaf, and then a very sharp spiny tip. Now with yuccas, the leaf can be spiny tipped, but usually the leaf, the length of the lip, leaf, the length of the leaf doesn't have like little spines sticking off it. It can be kind of abrasive and jagged and serrated, but it doesn't actually have big hooked spines on it so it's pretty easy to identify a agave if you look at those the differences in the leaf and of course the flowering structure of an agave is totally different one huge central flower and the really unique thing about the agaves is that they bloom once in their life and then they die they they undergo years decades perhaps of water storage and producing tons of starches and, and sugars in these big hearts of those leaves. It's stored there, and they're storing it, getting ready for the one reproductive event in their life. Um, and it's kind of sad, but it's, it's really cool in a way. They put so much investment into that one flowering that they mm. produce this two-story flowering stalk that might produce like liters of nectar every day um, that bats and moths and bees birds all wow. just get drunk on and um it's an amazing amazing plant we have several species in west texas probably the most common is one might not have known was an agave the lechuguilla lechuguilla yep. fibrous agave um it's not even particularly succulent uh that does grow um all over the place and then the really pretty one that has a massive bloom that's really uh, generous with nectar is the havard agave that can have enormous uh, leaves, you know, like three feet across, growing in kind of the foothill areas of like Jesus Mountains and elsewhere. So, so let's. So, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. No, no, you, I, well, I was done. Good well, point. you were talking about lechuguilla, and I've always had a hard time, uh, uh, kind of, uh, 
Lechuguilla and Sotol really confuse yeah. me. Hmm. Yeah. So Lechuguilla, so Sotol throws another kind of spanner in the works because it's almost like some sort of cross between a yucca and an agave. Yeah. Uh, that's not really what it is, but it can seem like that. Yeah. So Sotol has really long, um, fibrous leaves that are somewhat like a bear grass and some like somewhat like uh, agave leaves in a way mm-hmm. and somewhat like yucca leaves. And of course they have uh, toothed margins mm-hmm. like with little hooked teeth all along it, like, like an agave. And the lechuguillas um, have that too, right? Lechuguillas have it like an, just like an agave. And then so toll, the real difference, lechuguilla never grows into the big kind of uh, huge kind of cousin it size <laughs> ball of leaves that Sotol does. Okay. Um, the, right. the leaves of Sotol can be like three feet long, whereas Lechuguia, the leaves would only be a foot long at the most. Right. And of course, um, once you get familiar with them, you can, you can double check always the flower structure because mm. Lechuguia has the a really tall kind of almost like spear flowering stalk that of course, after it flowers, it dies. And then Sotol has a big kind of, bushy flowering stalk with tiny little lily flowers all mm. over it um that looks almost like a plume like an ostrich feather or something sticking out of the plant oh, wow. and they bloom they bloom multiple times uh, in their lives like like a like a yucca so um you know it'd be good to if you're if you're real confused about this you know spend some time looking at the different kind of leaf margins and what they look like and then try to find one of them in bloom and get used to what the flowering stock looks like. Mm. Um, you know, the, the Sotol, especially I think Sotol flowering stocks and, and Lechuguilla flowering stocks probably of all these different things look the most similar, but mm-hmm. with a little, little bit of practice, you can get the hang of which is which and tell which one is which by a glance. Wow. Wow. So we have, uh, we have that kind of hybrid, like like you're saying, right? Not not a succulent, but still kind of you know structured similar uh, to it. Now, if this next one really isn't a succulent, I'd be very su- surprised. But I think it is. I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, Candelia. Yes, very good. Yeah, Candelia is considered a succulent. Um, okay, and it's real waxy. So it belo- yeah, exactly. It's got that classic uh, waxy, um, supple texture. Uh, and it belongs to this big family of plants uh, more common in the warm tropics, the euphorb family, the euphorbiaceae. Uh, there, we have a bunch of euphorbs that are just kind of like weird, um, nondescript, boring, uh, herbaceous plants. Uh, but a lot of euphorbs grow into big succulents, including like massive succulents that fill the role of cactus in some of the other deserts of the world. So in Africa, for example, there are no cacti no native cacti. All cacti are native to the Western Hemisphere. Hmm. And But if you go to Southern Africa, so certain places where there are predictable rainfall periods, you'll find plants that look like cacti, but they're hmm. not cactus. They're, they're euphorbs. And they'll have fleshy uh, leaves and they'll have spines and they'll even grow like, uh, you know, this kind of candelabra organ pipe sort hmm. of shape, just like a cactus. Wow. But candelia is a good example of kind of our version of a desert euphorb that's managed to to do real well in West Texas. Um, looks like a bunch of kind of green, greenish gray straws sticking up out of the ground. Yeah, it looks like a, a um, whole bunch of candles, really. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, I think you can light them. Candles. 
and and you wouldn't want to light them, but I, I think you can. Uh, don't they use the the wax for they something? Do. It's so cool. Yeah, they they through kind of a caustic process. Um, they've been making wax out candle wax out of candelia in this part of the world for for hundreds of years. Wow! And they're still doing it. This is an amazing thing. <laughs> Um, and it, this is cool because like in the fifties and sixties, uh, Mexico actually outlawed production of candelia wax hmm. because they were, they, you know, a lot of things are nationalized in Mexico, the beer companies, for example, if you didn't know that, sure. but the, uh, they, they basically wanted to corner the market on production of candelia wax. And so there were these bootlegger candelieros out there making wax and, and bringing it over to the u.s in, in donkey trains you know uh illegally so wow. <laughs> the 50s and 60s i'm sure they probably <laughs> brought other stuff over and are definitely bringing other more lucrative things over now but they were making bootleg candelia wax that late and like the federales would try to shut them down it was like wow. elliot ness versus can you imagine so they're still doing it. I, I was down in uh, Coila, in a little town called, um, oh boy, San Miguel. And there was a little Candelia wax outfit there. <laughs> we saw the big vat of melting Candelia, all these big piles of, of uh, what looked like kind of straw after they got done with the Candelia. It was just kind of the skeleton of the plant was left. Wow. And they were making it. It was crazy. And I, I've heard that, like, I was real scared of stepping around. Cause I've heard that like they use like something crazy, like sulfuric acid to extract Ooh, the wax. Whoa. And I've heard of like horror stories of like candelieros falling into their vats on accident. And, and then they so turn into like, the wax. They, something bad <laughs> happens. I think they don't survive. That's a breaking and bad episode. Like, yeah, exactly. And I was like, Oh man, I hope I'm not about to step on some hidden vat uh, where there's just like this layer of sand over the top of the wax and I'm about to fall right in. But it was cool. It was neat to see that they're still doing it. I'm not sure where they sell it. It's supposed to be really good stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, But it's neat to see that traditional use for that plant still going on. It's terrible for the plant because they just yank yeah. it right out of the ground. Yeah. And it, it's, it's made it rare in some places, but it's still doing doing real well in west texas it's recovered from any of that kind of industry for the past yeah that's true it's beautiful too it's a beautiful beautiful plant well it is uh we're just about to approach our next commercial break um we're gonna go and do that uh after the break we have about 10 minutes we we're talking about the whole process of succulents earlier we want to kind of get back into that and how a single drop of water can create something so unique like a succulent so we'll see you after the break. Hey, everybody. Hello, West Texas. Sean Graham here, Conley Razor, as always. And we're doing a Science Night show for you today on succulents, cacti, and other really cool desert plants. And one of the things that um, I haven't mentioned yet, it's, it's kind of strange territory. I hope it doesn't get too technical. But there's another adaptation these succulent plants have that is another key to their success. Because if it was just all about water storage... That wouldn't be, you know, terribly impressive. So another thing that they have is a special kind of metabolism, a special kind of physiology that's unique to these kind of plants. And it's best known, probably better known by its uh, acronym, but I hate acronyms, but you call them CAM plants, C-A-M. Mm -hmm. And the acronym stands for 
Crassulacean acid metabolism, which is a mouthful. Wow. That name Crassulacean refers to this group of plants, the Crassulaceae, which are the stone crops, which are the uh, plants that they discovered this type of metabolism in. But uh, that name's horrible. Uh, it's hard to memorize. But what it does is pretty simple. Um, if you're familiar with desert animals, you might know that most desert animals are nocturnal. They only come out at night because nighttime in the desert is way more pleasant, less water loss. Uh, you're not going to get dehydrated as quickly. So uh, nighttime is the best time in the desert. So that's why most animals in the desert are active. And cam plants, succulents, most, most succulents have this type of metabolism. Cactus are a perfect example are kind of nocturnal. Uh, so what they do is, uh, you know, to, to bring in carbon dioxide, uh, plants bring it in into these little pores into their leaves called stomata. They open these pores, they bring in carbon dioxide, they kind of breathe it, if you want to say it that way. I won't, I won't get you in trouble for it. Um, they bring it in and they, they turn that carbon dioxide into sugar, into glucose, through the process of photosynthesis. And that requires light. We all know this. But one of the things that cactus do, which is really cool, is they kind of split the process. They open up their pores at night, and they allow carbon dioxide to go into their tissues when they're not going to lose as much water through those pores. It's mm -hmm. unfortunate those, those pores are a two-way street. They can breathe in carbon dioxide, but when they do that, they emit, they emit water, right. you know, water vapor. So there's no way around it. Uh, plants are going to lose some water to open up those pores uh, to, to do what they do. And so cactus, other succulents, they, they segregate that process to where they do that part at night. They store the carbon dioxide as this kind of organic acid until the morning, and they close up the pores. And they undergo photosynthesis. They go ahead and continue the rest of photosynthesis when the light is happening, when the pores are shut. And it works. By segregating it, they essentially act like a nocturnal creature uh, by splitting the duties. Now, this, this type of photosynthesis is not very efficient um, in terms of total production of sugars. It would be way better to have big, broad leaves and to do photosynthesis like ordinary plants do. So cactus this is another one of those examples where it's like a, it, it, you can't have it both ways. If you have this kind of photosynthesis, it is the most water-efficient photosynthesis there is. For every little drop of water that gets pulled up the roots, it's the most effective, most efficient way to do photosynthesis. But it's if you've got plenty of water, there's way better ways to do it. So this is kind of like cactus are really, really well adapted to the desert, but wouldn't do well competing with ordinary plants in wetter environments which is kind of one of the reasons why you really only find cactus in these kind of environments. They do turn up in other places, but they're way less common. So that's, that's cam metabolism. How did I do, uh, Conley? That was that, that super technical and awful. No, it, it makes, it makes sense. And, uh, you are, know, are our people going, they're reaching for their coffee and they're like turning us off. And they're like, <laughs> no, no, no. I think that does make sense, you know, because if they were to do it during the day, they sacrifice all that water to evaporation yeah. and uh, by doing it at night, you know, where, where the deer and all the other nocturnal animals are, are robust and vibrant, uh, then, you know, that makes that makes so much more sense. So they're a nocturnal type uh, species. In a way, yeah, they, they've 
they've kind of got they've turned their photosynthesis half of the photosynthetic um, kind of stages occur at night yeah. to take advantage of the cooler and uh, slightly more humid conditions of the nighttime. It's really cool. It's really savvy. And, and pretty much all of them do it. Any, any plant with succulent tissue, they not only use that tissue for water storage, mm-hmm. they use it to store those organic acids from, from cam photosynthesis. So both of those things are going on at the same time hmm. in that water storage tissue. Does it's kind of cool if, if, Does, you're, if you're interested in eating cacti, a lot of them are edible. If you take a little piece with your pocket knife and eat cactus first thing in the morning, it tastes bitter because it's been storing up those organic acids all night. Hmm. And if you, so the best time to eat a cactus is late in the afternoon after it's finished the photosynthesis, turned all those organic acids into real sugars, ah. right? And depleted the acid supply from the previous night so Hmm. morning is the worst time to eat a cactus evening is the best time does the moon affect uh any of this process at all like what full moon versus uh no moon new moon i don't think so because it'd be funny if somebody knew that i don't think any plant is able to use moonlight for photosynthesis there's just no there's no um the wavelength is is not strong enough yeah. Plants can grow at some ridiculously, ludicrously low light conditions, mm-hmm. but I don't think they can grow in the dark. That light. Yeah, moonlight. right. Yeah. Interesting. Now, Very I, cool. I, somebody's probably going to call and go, actually, you're a moron. I, I'll say that I'm not a botanist, so that would be pretty amazing if there is a plant out there that could do it. For yeah. example, there are plants that can photosynthesize through through uh, uh, quartz. So quartz rock cool. can be sitting there on the desert floor and you look underneath it. And it's like a little bit more moist under that rock uh-huh. and there'll be moss, moss growing under the rock. Interesting. And the moss are growing from the light that's going through the quartz solid rock through, through wow. a mineral. And they can use that. It's like the most measly <laughs> amount of photosynthetically active radiation you could ever imagine other than like moonlight or starlight. Yeah. And uh, they pull it off. So wow. There are some interesting examples like that, but I, I'd i be shocked. Of course, now some some listener, Martin Terry, <laughs> yeah. is going to call up and go, actually, you big, you should have taken my botany class because I would have told you, but I don't, I don't think so. I'm holding, I'm sticking to my guns. I don't think there's a plant that can right, right. operate from moonlight. Well, um, uh, before we head out, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, I want to talk about, and we could do a whole episode on this, and I'm planning that we do a whole episode on this. Uh, but uh, I came across in, on uh, one of uh, Dr. Terry's ranches, talking about Dr. Terry, uh, he has a preserve that he is uh, creating right now with his cool. wife, D, And um, they have this beautiful ranch. And I went out to it, and he invited me. And um, it is absolutely fantastic with an array of different species of cacti now i came across this one scene that was absolutely brilliant it had the spiny cactus on the outside and there was one spiny cactus that had like a stem uh and then it it came out and it kind of uh covered like i guess you could say the spines protected it from birds i guess or you know aerial like intervention and on the Uh side. So it was like this little fortress of spines. Well, on the inside you have all your little, like the Eagle claws, the, the real 
supple and very vulnerable, like uh, the uh, candelias and just real vulnerable cactus that you don't have spines, right? And mm-hmm. uh, it, it was just an amazing uh, conglomerate of, of different cacti uh, that are really helping each other. And, they, you know, Dr. Terry talks a lot about nursing plants and how, yeah, yeah. how they actually, their existence is... Uh, unknowingly to them is to aid this other plant that's growing right next to them. So uh, mm-hmm. it's really cool. And I think we could do a whole show on how plants communicate. And I think that would be how they, really how they interesting. Interact that way. Yeah. Well, yeah, how, that's cool. how they and interact you, and how they communicate because uh, you know, is Terry planning on making this ranch like open to the public? Uh, to academics. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. How cool. Yeah. yeah, that sounds amazing. And yeah, that um the interactions between these plants is pretty amazing stuff. Um and yeah, we I'd love to talk about it, especially if we get lots of listeners um calling in and sa- and demanding it cuz we, yeah. we're cheap. We'll talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. Yeah. We'll talk about pseudoscience, talk yeah. about astrology, I don't care. Whatever you guys want. Yeah, yeah. So we're planning on uh, we, we'd like to do that. So we have more episodes in the docket. October is going to be a fun one. We're going to be talking about um, microscopic monsters. So that's oh, nice. definitely in the docket there and much, much more. So uh, stay tuned. Anything you want to wrap up with? Dr. Grant, I think we I think we covered everything. Uh, just look out for your look out for your desert succulents. They are a lot of them are getting kind of hammered by uh by you know cactus rustlers and so you know if you have a good piece of property with lots of succulents and you love them you know uh keep people off of there keep people from digging them up a lot of people dig them up to take you know for ornamental purposes and a lot of our desert plants are getting hit pretty hard for that and so um yeah maybe look out for your your fellow desert dwellers um if you can Well, that sounds good. Well, we'll see y'all next week on Science Nights in the Morning. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432-217-1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you, and thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's Science Nights in the Morning with a K, and we'll see you next time.